Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. My name's Jess Miles, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Alison Young, Sir David Williams Professor of Public Law at the University of Cambridge and an academic associate at 39 Essex Chambers. Alison's book, Unchecked Power, poses the question, do populist governments and leaders harm democracy? Unchecked Power examines constitutional events between December 2019 and April 2023. It covers a huge range of areas. It's got Partygate, Brexit, prorogation, PMQs, expenses scandal, kill the bill, the illegal migration bill, Northern Ireland protocol, and there's more. So the big events attracted media attention, but under the radar, other constitutional changes have been taking place, which have strengthened governmental powers and weakened political and legal checks over what they do. It's something we should be worried about, but we don't even know it's happening. And this kind of growth in governmental power and the homogenizing voice of the will of the people is happening all over the world, not just the UK. It really, really matters. Um, and Alison's book explains why. So let's find out more. Hello, Alison. Hi, Jess. Nice Hi. to meet you. Yeah, thank you for this today. Oh, my goodness. There's so much here. <laughs> um, so just find out a bit about your background and why why you've written this. So you start the book in the acknowledgements with the story of how the idea emerged just from conversations you were having about politics with people you knew. So can you tell us a bit about this and how you came to write the book? And also, I'm interested to know why you chose to only focus on this, um, albeit very eventful period. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so yes, this uh, came about, as I mentioned, in the acknowledgements, mostly because um, I I think a lot of people did post COVID thought it's time to get out and do other things. And so I was one of those that thought I'll join a yoga and Pilates studio. And as you do, you go for coffee with new people afterwards. And the question always comes up with, what do you do? And it's a bit odd to kind of say to someone, oh, I'm this professor that works in Cambridge somewhere at this university. So you tend to try and explain what it is you work in. And I was very lucky in some sense because at the time Partygate was going on. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, well, I work on the constitution and they'd say, what's that? And they'd say, well, you know what's going on with Partygate? And I think originally I thought, well, people are not going to be interested. They're just going to say to me, you know, how, you know, what a great job. Anyway, let's talk about something else. <laughs> that exercise class was really tough, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, look at these cakes. And but what I found really fascinating was not only were people interested, but the more you talk to them about it, the more they realize, hang on, why is this happening? And people aren't talking to me about it. So just little things of explaining things that, well, why it is that, there'd have to be, so following Partygate, why there was the internal inquiry, what the ministerial code was, why a civil servant was involved in investigating it, and then how it linked into what then went on in Parliament and what different votes were. It was just, I think, A, you don't realise necessarily when you're involved in the Constitution just how odd it is to be thinking mm -hmm. about these issues. And B, you also think, well, no one else is going to be interested in these things. And so just being able to talk to people and explain things I found was really worthwhile. And also it really helped me to think that they were interested, but also in a lot of senses, shocked that these things were going on and no one was talking about it. And that's what sort of motivated me to try and build on the book that way. Mm. It was great for them to be able to ask you the questions. I think we get very used to like these phrases like ministerial, ministerial code or whatever, and you kind of never go beyond or really get to ask anyone what they mean. So, exactly. So why only these few years? 
Um, partly for sanity reasons, because so much has been changing. It's been so hard to keep up with everything. Yeah. I think um, more importantly, academically, it was a nice little period in which um, I could think about, well, we've had Brexit. This was a massive upheaval to the UK constitution. And the whole point was to think about, well, what's happening after Brexit. So a lot has been written about the Brexit process, what that meant, where we would be going forward. And so I thought it was a really good idea to kind of take the general election at the end of 2019 mm. as my starting point, because that was really the beginning of moving into the post-Brexit period. And it also we elected a Conservative government with a manifesto promise to make certain constitutional changes some of which were seen as a reaction to Brexit and the process of achieving Brexit. So I thought it was a nice idea to kind of take that period of, well, are we having, you know, are we moving towards a post-Brexit constitution? And if so, is this a good or bad move? Right. And the second motivation for it was obviously um, the kind of, in some sense, this elephant in the room, though, though he does appear in name all the way through the book, which is there were lots of... Um, kind of questionings and discussions about Boris Johnson's style of leadership and whether he was an exemplification of a populist leader. So that obviously gave me an, another reason for kind of focusing on that period, because that was a clear period in which he wasn't just, you know, he was elected um, as leader of his party. And then he had the general election that confirmed, in a sense, his direction of where the country wanted to go. And so it was an interesting kind of way to take a step back and say, well, are these accusations fair? And mm. if so, what are the consequences or are they unfair? Are they just insults? And is actually really this is just sort of discussions going on in the background and it's not actually problematic. So that's my main reason for focusing on that particular period. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we'll talk about populism in a minute. Um, but I just want to be really clear for myself as much as anything to start with. So the UK constitution is not written. So it's kind of, it feels like this quite strange thing in a way. So where does it exist and how is it codified? And also um, what's the difference between what is constitution and what is law? Mm -hmm. If, okay. they're not, if they're not daft questions. <laughs> but they're not daft questions at all. In fact, uh, the first thing we do on a constitutional law course is sit people down and say, OK, how can we teach you about the UK constitution when I can't send you to a library and you can pick up a book that says, here is the UK constitution. And so it, it's not daft at all. And it's, it's one of the things I think that people find the most confusing okay. about the UK constitution, because you can't do that. In, in, in you know, If you're in the US, I could send you away. You could pick up a book that says, here is the US constitution. And I can't do that in the UK. Mm. So what we have instead is a whole range of different sources that we see as being connected into the constitution. So what we mean by that is these are the kind of rules, the practices, the guidance kind of ideas that tell us who is in power. So it, it sets out what parliament is, what the government is, what the judiciary is and their different roles and how those in power relate to kind of individuals. So we see these as being constitutional and then we have different sources of these rules and practices. So the main distinction that you've pointed out is this idea of some of the sources connecting to law. So they give us laws that the court can enforce and some of them don't. 
Right. So that's the kind of key distinction we find in the Constitution. And that's how we try and think about how something can be um, legal, but unconstitutional, which sounds a bit of an odd thing. If you say that to a US person, how can it be legal, but also unconstitutional? And that's because we'd say, well, legally, you can do this because there's no law saying you can't. But we take a step back and say, but the practices would say this is not how you're supposed to do things. And so in that sense, it becomes unconstitutional. So, so it's that kind of doing the right thing. Exactly. And spend, yeah. Exactly. And sometimes we just mean it in a sense of that's not how a constitution should work. And sometimes we'll point to these other rules and practices. So I'll try and set out what they are. So we have a, sort, a system where we have things that are written down but it's not codified in one document and it's not all law. So right. very simple, really, obviously. <laughs> so it can be a real nightmare to unpack everything. So in terms of laws, you can find rules about how the constitution works in acts of parliament and also in judicial decisions. So to give some examples, the key one we all think about is the Human Rights Act 1998. Okay. So that's a piece of legislation and we'd see it as, constitutional because it's our way of protecting human rights in the UK. So we see it as, well, that's a law. So it sets out when it would be unlawful to do various things. So the Human Rights Act tells you that it's unlawful for a public authority to act in a manner that's contrary to convention rights. Yeah. So if a public body takes a decision that breaches your convention rights, you can go to court and protect your rights. And that's found in the human rights act. So it's a legal source that protects the constitution. Yeah. You also find legal sources from case law. So the case that everyone knows is prorogation case, the mm -hmm. Miller and Cherry case, where we had um, Lady Hale as president of the Supreme Court wearing her big spider brooch, telling you... Oh, it all comes whether, back, doesn't it? It all yeah. comes flooding <laughs> back, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So they, they had um, Lady Hale with her spider brooch giving the decision of the Supreme Court as to whether Boris Johnson's prorogation of Parliament in um, 2019 was lawful or unlawful. Okay. And so what happens there is you have the Supreme Court taking a legal decision, drawing on what we call the common law. So these are legal principles that the courts have developed and over time. And so the court looked at common law principles, said, well, the common law puts a limit on when you can prorogue parliament. It then told you what the limit was, looked at this particular prorogation and said, well, if you're going to prorogue parliament for so long in a way that undermines these common law principles of parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary accountability, you have to have a justification. You've not given us a justification, so your prorogation is unlawful. And so that, again, is its law, but it's been developed by the courts and it's constitutional because it's to do with how the government works how the government runs okay. in those particular circumstances. So they're all the kind of main sources of constitutional law. Right. Then, just to add to the fun, we have a whole series of other things that courts can't enforce, so they're not law, but which regulate aspects of the constitution. Mm. One key element is what we call constitutional conventions. So these are kinds of practices that have happened or emerged over time and these are not things that the courts will enforce so one key convention of the uk constitution is that the government only has power to the extent that it has the confidence of the house of commons 
So that it's a constitutional convention that if the government loses a vote of confidence in the House of Commons, then you'll dissolve Parliament and have a general election because that government no longer has the confidence of the House of Commons. And so therefore, you should have a general election and a new government. And there's but no law. In yeah. theory, that doesn't have to happen because it's not a law. It's not a law. It's like, a this is really yeah. what we should do now. And exactly. So, okay. and, be, and because it's a constitutional convention, they're enforced by political means. Yeah. So all those actors in the system, so all politicians, if you had a government that lost a vote of no confidence, and then the prime minister said, oh, it doesn't matter, we're just going to stay in power anyway, then the idea is MPs in parliament would say, well, this is an outrage. This is not how the constitution works. Mm. And they would put political pressure on the then government such that they'd have to resign. It would yeah. also be almost impossible for the government to do anything because every time it tried to do something you yeah. probably have a backbench MPs thinking well this isn't the right thing to do as well as so every time it tried to do something because it yeah. didn't have the confidence of the house it wouldn't be able to pass yeah. laws because they just keep being voted down and eventually they would be forced so it's it's political mechanisms and political pressure and this understanding that everyone accepts that that's the right thing to do mm. but makes it a constitutional convention yeah and that's not always easy to pin down because they'll change over time as behavior changes but they and every constitution will have these but because we don't have as many written sources as some other constitutions we tend to have more things being regulated by these constitutional conventions than by law so it would be unconstitutional to lose a vote of confidence and then say I can't be bothered. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not dissolving Parliament. I'm going to stay in power and see what happens. Mm. But it wouldn't be unlawful. Mm. And that and, that's kind of one of those examples of, of how it can be different. Yeah. And this is why um, things like behaviour and styles of government are so important because Absolutely. there's a lot of... Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of interpretation happening, yes. isn't there, yes. really? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So... Um, Thinking of styles of government, um, your book really shows, well, like the general trend um, is towards kind of increased government power, reduced checks and balances. But also this idea that, especially like under someone like Boris Johnson, that the government is enacting the will of the people. Mm. Um, and kind of on the surface of things, this almost sounds like we're becoming more democratic Um but essentially, this is about populism, isn't it? It's about yeah. government using a populist style to satisfy its own agenda, potentially. Mm. So please, could you talk about how this works and explain um, why we should be worried? Because it, okay. worri it worries me. <laughs> <laughs> it worries me. <laughs> it worries me greatly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're right. It, it, if you say to somebody, I'm acting in line with the will of the people. So when, when you get all these statements about the reason we're going to make these changes is because this is going to implement the will of the people, then that looks great because this is what democracy should be doing. We want governments that are democratic, that take account of the will of the people. So the real question is to take a step back and say, well, what is the will of the people and how do we find it? So one way of kind of thinking about it in a way that can be kind of easy to understand in some, in some senses is imagine you're part of a little group of friends and you're trying to decide what form am I going to see? Okay. And, you know, you might say, well, wouldn't it be great if we took the will of the group? 
And so everyone in the group said, well, I quite fancy this film or the other film. And everyone had a say and you had a long discussion. And then eventually from that discussion, a consensus emerged and you had a lovely time at the film and it was great. Mm-hmm. And we'd all say, wasn't that a really good sort of democratic way of working out the will of the people of that group and deciding where to go? But there are other ways in which you can try and sort of say you're acting in line with the will of the people. So if you had an extreme version, you could have, you know, um, cinema group critic leader who decides, right, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the will of the people has to be we watch this film. And if you don't think that that is the film you're supposed to watch, then you're really not part of this cinema group, are you? Because it's obvious that this cinema group is only going to like this film. Now, that's okay. a very extreme version. Yeah. You see what I mean about then the will of the people is no longer this idea of consensus forming. An extreme form of populism that pushes to authoritarianism is this idea of almost like a charismatic leader that is more or less telling you what the will of the people is. And if you yeah. don't agree, you're not really part of the people. And it's that fear that pushes it to extreme versions. Now, we're not talking about those extreme versions of populism, but what my book is concerned about is when we start saying we're acting in line with the will of the people, are we actually acting in line with a consensus of a group of all sorts of different groups in society who've had a chance to have a say, put their viewpoint forward, and all those are then thought through to try and come up with what the people as a consensus want? Or are we moving to a situation where the will of the people is more, you're almost told what it is, or it's a kind of subgroup who are active, whose voice is heard, whereas other people are silenced and you don't get to hear their points of view. Mm. And it's what theories call homogenizing the will. And there's various things that will homogenize so that instead of there being lots and lots of different voices that come form a consensus, it's kind of one voice is taken as the one true voice of the people that everyone has to follow. So referendums are one thing that can do that. So you have a referendum, you all vote, the answer's yes. So the will of the people becomes yes. You think, well, that's the will of a particular majority. Yeah, but potentially the government's already decided what the will of the people is before it asks the people. Exactly. And and it's those kinds of elements. And things like, um, so manifesto promises in um, general elections form a big role. It's like, well, the people have voted for this. Well, how many of them read it? And if they read it, did they understand it? And did they vote for that or not for that, but still thought that political party was better? So all these ways are are kind of methods by which the will of the people is no longer a true reflection of everyone. Mm. And it's trying to distinguish between those ways of, of doing this in a way that is legitimate, that respects the electorate, but recognises that we couldn't possibly have everyone discussing for eternity because no decision would ever be made, Mm. which doesn't collapse into, look, we're just going to tell you what it is and deal with it. Mm. And it's trying to find a way of facilitating discussion so you're taking democratic decisions without it collapsing into populism where the will of the people becomes almost like an artificial construct of a subgroup. And unless you agree with that subgroup, you're not really part of the people, are you? Or where what you get is so another area where it becomes problematic is things like social media. So a lot uh, of people yeah. get information from social media. You click on something, you like it. The algorithms keep then sending you that. And so suddenly you think, oh, everyone must think this is good because that's what I keep getting. 
yeah. and that's another subtle way which I, i'm not the, just to be clear i'm not saying the government is out there manipulating your social media it's definitely not what is going on but it's another way in which what then emerges from a discussion might not be a full reflection of every viewpoint and some viewpoints might be silenced in certain ways so it's it's, it's thinking about ways in which the will of the people isn't done in a way that is respectful of everyone's different discussions and choices and how far we're sliding away from that yeah i mean social media must be a big part of the reason yeah. why populism or populist mm. styles of leadership are kind of happening all over the world yeah. um and then it's just advantageous to the government isn't it to be able to do what they want to do under the guise of will of the people, isn't it? It exactly. gives them a mandate, yeah. like an, un, an unofficial mandate almost. Exactly. Um, so I said in the introduction that your book covers many, many different areas and different things that we'll all be familiar with um, from recent years um, and the impact of them as well and possibly like the longer term changes that there might be because of them that we can't necessarily see. Mm. Um, I suppose I'm thinking like we see things on the news like prorogation, zombie parliaments, and we have a <laughs> level of awareness about what's yeah. going on. But having read your book, what's really unsettling is that the smaller constitutional changes that happen off the back of these events mm. that either change things in the moment or kind of potentially may have long-term um, effects on power and how we're governed. Mm. So um, it would be really, really great if you could talk through maybe just one or two examples from the book about recent constitutional yep. reform and why it's problematic. Okay, so the one I tend to use when I talk to people is uh, the Dissolution and Calling of Parliament Act 2022. Um, okay. My first question to people is, have you heard of the Act? And normally if they've not read the book... They go, no, the what? Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't and I, before I read yeah, the book. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 this is and this is a huge change. So what this does is um from so we did have an act of parliament that came in through the coalition government called the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. And what this did is it said, okay, from now on, parliaments are normally four or five years. So every parliament is five years long, it comes to the end of its five-year term, and you have a general election. Okay. So it's fixed parliamentary terms and um, there were various ways in which you could have an early parliamentary general election so we saw this where we had the early parliamentary general election that was initiated by Theresa May mm -hmm. and she to get an early parliamentary general election you needed to have uh, the votes of two-thirds of the members of the House of Commons voting in favour of an early general election yeah so you've got a parliamentary element of check yeah and so what that means in reality is you know when a general elections are going to happen if it's going to happen at a different time there's some kind of parliamentary oversight and this can make it harder for someone who's a prime minister to get their government together and sort of gamble on when they think they're more likely to be re-elected Right. Yeah. That, they can't they can't goes. time it to their advantage. Exactly. So yeah. they're not there sort of with their kind of crystal ball going, this date yeah. means is more likely to give us more votes than another date. That that is yeah. taken away from them because they'd need two-thirds of the whole House of Commons to have an early general election. And the only other way you could have one was a vote of no confidence. Mm -hmm. But then you'd have a two-week period in which you could work out can there be another government? And if not, you'd have a general election. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what it, how it was working. 
And this caused problems for Boris Johnson because he tried to have early parliamentary general elections in 2019. He tried three times. Mm. And although there was a vote in favour of the early parliamentary general election, he didn't have the votes of two thirds of the entire member of the House of Commons. And this is where he kept talking about zombie parliaments. Right. You're you're not letting me vote through Brexit because you keep telling me I've got to extend the deadline because you don't want to leave with no deal. You won't let me have a general election because you keep voting against that. I, the prime minister and my government cannot do these things. And so he referred to this as a zombie parliament. I can't do anything. But what Mm. he really did was zombie government because parliament's stopping me from doing the things I want to do. Yeah, he couldn't. It's not that he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do what he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and and he would say, well, that's, you know, I'm the government. I've got the majority or in his mm. chance, a minority government at the time, but I should be able to do these things. That, that, mm-hmm. That's how it works. So what um, the reaction was to this was to change away from fixed terms to what we had before that, which is what we find in the Dissolution and Calling of Parliament Act 2022. So now we're back to a system of maximum terms. So the maximum term is five years. But if you would like to be earlier than that, then it's for the government to ask the monarch to dissolve parliament and have a general election. Now, it's going to be very rare that the monarch turns around and says no, because obviously the monarch does not want to get involved in politics. There might be exceptional circumstances. If there's a time of sort of massive economic crisis that you think would be made worse by a general election, for example, mm. the monarch might think, well, maybe, are you sure about this? And so there could be those kinds of extreme circumstances. But normally, the monarch is going to agree to the request. And so therefore, normally, if you request the dissolution of a general election, it will be there. There's no need for a vote in the House of Commons. The Act also makes it clear that the courts can't review this decision either. Right. Essentially, you've returned to what you had before. And so what concerned me about this is this is a big change on the Constitution. And it could be one that the electorate think, oh, that's a good idea. Or it could be one that the electorate thinks, no, I'm not so sure about this. But because I'm not sure when people vote of the manifesto, even though it says we will repeal the fixed term parliament acts, I'm not sure how many people read that, understood <laughs> that, and would have wanted thought about it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, because it was a manifesto promise, and because there was a general parliamentary consensus to do to repeal the fixed term parliament act, there was very little parliamentary debate. There'd been a review of the fixed term parliament act, which, which was required by the 2011 act itself. But it kind of almost flew under the radar. Not many people know about it, not necessarily discussed it or got involved in it. So there's a quite a large constitutional change back without necessarily people understanding that this change happened. And then if you look at the debates, the discussion was all, this is giving power to the people. You think, well, why is it giving power to the people? Well, the argument was because you get a general election, so you get to vote. You think, well, yes, but the people aren't deciding when that general election will take place. You're actually really giving power to the government to decide when to hold a general election. So next year, for example, so there has to be a general election by the end of next year. Yes. 
Um, and lots of people are saying, oh, maybe it will happen in spring, blah, blah, blah. But that will only be if Rishi Sunak, assuming yeah. it's him, I don't think it can't be, um, says choose, chooses now to have yeah. a general election. Yes. That's such a huge change, isn't it? And it's when, again, it's that thing you kind of know, but you don't really yep. know or fully understand yep. it. And these, and this is just one example of so yep. many examples in your book exactly. of how like it, mm-hmm. it's all shifting and changing yep. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just legislation like this that can change things. So this is a legislation change and the, the people arguing about the pros and cons and it is taking it back to the situation we had prior to 2011 but yeah it's 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 the lack of awareness and discussion that that kind of concerns me Mm. but other changes can be made under the radar so another change I don't discuss in the book so you can have this one for free um we used to have um a system called and it's uh, English votes for English laws right so this is all to do with the ins and outs of if you have um the Westminster Parliament deals with England and the UK. Yeah. But it has representatives from the UK. Mm-hmm. So some decisions that can be made by Westminster will only really affect England because that power has been devolved to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So things yeah. like um health, education, those kinds of aspects. So the, the question then becomes, well, what should the the MPs from Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland have a say on English-only issues. That, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. So we used to have a system called English Votes for English Laws, where you'd have to have, if it was deemed to be something that only affected England, then you'd have to have a majority of English MPs as well as a majority of Westminster MPs. And this was kind of seen as a safeguard. Mm-hmm. But it was very rarely used. Mm-hmm. And it was only an internal parliamentary proceeding. So Parliament just decided in the House of Commons, the members of the House of Commons voted on a resolution, we'll do this. Mm-hmm. We'll change how we make laws in this way. They then reverse the resolution and it's gone. And again, no one even knew English votes for English laws necessarily existed. And then yeah. it disappeared by a resolution of the House of Commons. It didn't even need a law because it was just an internal rule of the House of Commons. And yet that had a real impact on how we make laws. Yeah. It's my, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Jess. <laughs> I get carried away. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I'm cut you, and then you start rattling like through the implications of it all, and I don't know what they are, but it's very but, unsettling. For, so, for things like um, English votes for English laws, uh, it means that um, sometimes you can be relying on. Uh, you might have a minority in England, and you're relying on votes from Scotland, for example, to get something through, and yet it's not going to affect Scotland. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So as I read the book, this is speaking very, very generally now. um, But one thing, reading through the book, all these kinds of examples, some of which we're familiar with, some of which we don't know much about at all. But one thing that really kept popping into my head was um, just how kind of accepting, either accepting or disengaged we are um, from like bad behavior from those in government. And I was trying, it's, I don't know, they they do things and we go, oh, that's awful. And then we kind of let it wash over us and everyone moves on. But do you think that kind of acceptance of bad behaviour is um, like down to a lack of knowledge and understanding about um, the constitutional impact of the things they do? I think it does play a role. And that, that's not to be 
critical of of the general electorate. I think it is to be critical of the education system that we don't necessarily have built into general education in schools a, a really deep discussion and understanding of how parliament works, how laws works, how the government works. I mean, I know from having my daughter go through the state school system, I think she had one discussion in primary school um, about, you know, very generally about how a law was made. And, and about they do a bit about democracy. They Mine do a, did bit a little about bit about democracy, democracy. and yeah. a little bit about the rule of law. But it, yeah. it, it's done in a very kind of this isn't really part of your studies. But it's kind of and it, it, yeah, there isn't necessarily a constant element of discussing how it works or a, a discussion about why we have democracy, why democracy is valuable. Does mm. it work? Is it actually including every group? Why do we have courts? Why are courts valuable? And do they work? And again, do people actually have access to justice to go and protect their rights? Why Why do we want human rights? Why do we want equality? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's this kind of lack of seeing these things as aspects that should be being discussed in the school system in more depth. I mean, it's, it's not, I, I don't want to be, seem to be hypercritical of education and schools either who do a great job, but it's, it's, I don't think we've necessarily thought about building it in in a detailed way. Mm. It's, it sort of becomes, oh, it's just for those elite people. They, they deal with the politics. It isn't necessarily for us who aren't involved in politics to be involved in it. And I think that's really disappointing because it, it rules out a lot of people who have real concerns real issues a huge amount of knowledge and expertise and yet aren't necessarily taught about how things work so don't really know how to feed in their voices into this particular system and so I think that is one aspect of it Mm. but I think we also have to think about things um, like you know how what stories are and are not interesting in the media and how they get picked up and how we portray what's going on Mm-hmm. what how things get portrayed in social media and how you know is this being done in a way that allows people to see different viewpoints mm-hmm. so they can assess them for themselves and not just one viewpoint that might reinforce one particular message without necessarily thinking about well what is the other side and mm-hmm. why why do I agree or disagree with the other side what, what can I take away from from thinking about these kinds of issues and and for some reason we we seem to think that you know politics is boring and is 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 not really about us and yet Mm. actually it has an impact on on everything so I I grew up in Sheffield um and I was growing up on a council estate in the 1980s and we you know everything was affected by the minor strikes the steel industry collapse and then the teacher strikes yeah and these were real deep political issues that had a real impact on my community and yet we didn't feel as a community that you could then have a say on them because, and then it would all be, Oh, that's just politics. That's for other people, but it's not, it's for everyone. And I think it's trying to overcome that kind of lack of education and, and in some senses, lack of discussion of these things more generally and the lack and how we cover them in the media, I think all play a role, I think. Yeah. And it's like law, isn't it? It's so complex. Yeah. People, I think, oh, I can't possibly understand how that's yeah. done and that's done. Yeah. And there's nowhere ever to break it down and try and yeah. get your head into yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess when bad behavior happens, it's it because you, you don't know the detail of why yeah. you yeah. kind of have yeah. to move on from it. Yeah. 
and, and I think we're also very short term. So yeah. during Partygate, everyone was very concerned about is there evidence that there's one rule for politicians and a different rule for us or one rule for uh, people in 10 Downing Street and a different rule for us. And I think people are, still are genuinely upset and very concerned about this lack of equality of and the evidence that was coming through of what was happening. But then, of course, it can be quite a while to the next general election. Mm. Mm. So you, it might not necessarily be the main topic anymore. And, mm. and general elections are not just about what happened in Partygate, you've also got to take a step back and think about, well, which political party do I think has got the best policies to take us forward? And that yeah. might become more important than, well, I know there were, you know, this this MP or this particular minister, you know, was went to one of these parties that when they shouldn't have done, but actually, nevertheless, this polit- these policies are better than the policies of someone else. And so it, it's very hard to separate all these issues out when the only real time you get to say is in a general election where our electoral system is first past the post. Yeah. And so you're generally voting on party lines, not necessarily for individuals. Mm. And if you know you can vote for some political parties and think, well, what's the point? Because that vote is never going to count. Yeah. Because they're never going to get a majority. Yeah. yeah. There's you kind of left with this sense of like it doesn't matter how upset I am by what people do, my hands are tied. Because yeah. this is the system that we're working in, yeah. and actually our options as um, voting citizens are very, very limited, aren't they? Yeah, despite exactly. the, despite the fact that government is allegedly um, acting according to the will of the people. Yeah, um, I think all of this takes us quite nicely to my final question. When you were talking about education and things, um, just thinking about the future a bit more. In the book, you say. The UK constitution is standing on the precipice of a constitutional cliff edge, but there is still time for our constitution to step back. To do so, it needs you. So I kind of wanted to take that and thinking about to the conversations you were having in um, the cafe at the beginning of this Mm -hmm. interview. Who do you want to read the book and what do you want them to take from it? Okay, so in in an ideal world, I think anybody who is affected by political decisions on what's going on in the UK constitution I I'd like to read to read this book I mean obviously I can't make everyone read it but in some senses I think it it affects absolutely everybody who lives works in the UK and is affected by the political decisions made by bodies in the UK and and I literally do mean so the people I talk to um after my um yoga classes it, sometimes it would be the the instructors. I had a, a really good friend who worked in the coroner's office, lots of people who were nurses, some who were teachers, some who worked in shops. And it, it was a vast array of different people from very many different backgrounds. And if you kind of take a step back, introduce things in a way that doesn't use terrible yeah. terminology and, and, and kind of explains the reality and then says, oh, this is what this terminology means this this is this is why people use this as a kind of shorthand yeah. I've, think, I've read it and yeah, I have to say yeah. you have written it very accessibly and oh, in, <laughs> in a way that makes these very complicated things easy to understand I think because of yeah. because there's so many examples that we're all yeah. quite familiar with yeah yeah and that that's what I was hoping that it would be accessible and and that anybody affected by these decisions could read it and hopefully get a better understanding and what do I want 
sort of people to do what's my hope i hope that it gets people more engaged i mean i right. don't necessarily have a hope in the sense of and this is my vision of the constitution and you must all now adopt it, it, it it's if I have a vision, it's for people to be more engaged, to understand what is going on and to take a bit of time to think about well, what is in the next general election. What are these people promising? How did they behave? Can I trust them? What is the impact actually going to be for me in my community? Because I think the more you are thinking about these issues and getting engaged with these issues, the more the people running for parliament will realise that they've got people who are engaged, who do understand what is going on, such that if they do act in a way that isn't how they should be acting, that is undermining constitutional standards, that is is not acting in a way that trusts individuals, or that are, are trying to say, well, this is the real will of the people, well, engage people can turn around and say, well, actually, no, it's not. You haven't come and talked to me. And, and yes. this is what I think you should be doing in these circumstances. And I think the hope is that the more you do this, the more you actually do end up with a system where MPs, ministers are much more conscious that their electorate are there, they have issues and that they are willing. And this is not to tar every MP with a bad brush. There's some brilliant MPs yeah. who actually do that, who go out, reach out, have really good constituencies and, and really do engage with individuals. And I think the more that happens, the better, I think. Yeah. You also say um, about something that I thought was really nice about talking about democracy more like mm. amongst ourselves and yeah. not just going, oh, we live in a democratic um country um could mm. you just say a quick little bit about that before we finish because I thought that was a really nice human side yeah. of it yeah I think I think it is really about having those conversations about why we think democracy is important and it's almost assumed so if mm. you say to someone how should we take a decision we think oh we should take it democratically I think well why and it's about understanding that when you take decisions democratically it's not just about adding up a series of votes and that's mm. the end of it going away. It's about taking decisions in a way that is respectful of those people you are governing, that mm. allows them to have a say, that allows them to have um, discussions amongst themselves, that doesn't tell them how they're supposed to vote, but puts them in a position where they can weigh up different viewpoints, decide for themselves what policies they would like to follow and where they want the country to go. Mm. And I think it's taking decisions democratically in a way that is respectful of individuals and it's about getting people engaged and understanding that that is what democracy is for it's not just i vote someone counts my vote we go yeah. away and i come back again in five years yeah. but it's about understanding and thinking about how we take decisions in a way that is respectful of and reflective of the views of everyone in a particular community and I think the more we can discuss why that is useful and valuable the better. Thank you Alison so honestly such an interesting book and it really does kind of hone hone you in on just being a bit more critical I think and thinking about mm. things in different ways and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, Unchecked Power, How Recent Constitutional Reforms Are Threatening UK Democracy by Alison Young is available on the Bristol University Press website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>